Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 309, and today's guest is Elise Weiner, partner at Material Impact. Okay, this is a first. This episode is one of two interviews that we recorded live at Startup Boston Week at Suffolk University, which was a ton of fun, and maybe it is something that I should do more often. If you're not familiar with Material Impact, they are a deep tech VC firm that was founded by Carmichael Roberts and Adam Sharkawi. The firm is investing in companies that are powered by material science that solve enduring, large-scale, real-world problems. They are full-life cycle investors and work with companies from the earliest stages. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Elisa's background story, including how she made the transition to marketing and her role at high-growth startups like MC10 and Lose It the importance of understanding your customer, and the difference between B2B versus B2C marketing, all the details about material impact in terms of the types of companies they invest in and how they support their portfolio companies, a deep conversation about Gen Phoenix, a portfolio company where Elise is their interim CMO, the company rescues leather offcuts destined for landfill and regenerates them into a premium durable leather material coveted by the world's most iconic brands in the fashion industry, advice on getting media attention for your startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is highly likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that VentureFist can help. A subscription includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, your culture, and your hiring process. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include videos, podcasts, employee profiles, and so much more. Reach out to Info Adventurefiz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Elise. Elise, thanks so much for joining us here at the podcast studio, Boston Startup Week, which this is my first live podcast. I've never done one live. My production is usually very minimal. It's a Zoom <laughs> setup with a uh, blue Yeti mic, so it's very low tech. <laughs> Here at Suffolk University, they don't mess around. It's a, no. it's a major, major production. This I feel like serious. I feel like we should be broadcasting an NFL game. I know. <laughs> I think I like that idea. This is what it feels like to be a Troy Aikman just doing a game. So. Totally. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk a lot about your background, sure. your professional history, all the work you're doing as an investor, which I'm so excited to talk about because I was looking through your portfolio and there's so many amazing companies. Yep. And we're going to talk about some great pieces of advice for entrepreneurs to learn and hopefully get value from for their companies. Sure. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's, I always like to do something that kind of kicks things off uh, instead of just talking about your background. So there's so many emerging areas of technology, right? Yes. So you guys are in, focused in material sciences, but like, what are you excited about right now? So I'm a little biased in answering this because it's kind of a, an area that's near and dear to my heart. So within Material Impact, we invest at the intersection, as you said, of material science and impact. So when we say impact, we, need, we mean some sort of meaningful impact on real world problems in areas like food and water, healthcare, transportation, security. Um, we've looked broadly at sustainability as a core area and all of its flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, one area that I'm in particularly interested in is kind of the next gen material space and sustainability. So really more sustainable alternatives to traditional materials in fashion. We'll talk a little bit about Gen Phoenix, where I also sit as CMO. Um, but we see kind of a lot of large fashion brands, household names, 
who've come out with very audacious sustainability objectives as it relates to their reduction in carbon, their reduction in using natural resources by 2025, 2030. But in order to do that, they have to kind of rethink their business models, rethink the materials that they use, rethink everything that they know about their own supply chain in order to meet these very audacious goals. So I am super excited about all of the new technologies in kind of the leather alternative space. So we see people taking all kinds of approaches to like, we love leather. It's across handbags, personal goods, transportation, automotive, right? Um, but we know that leather is responsible for a lot of carbon, greenhouse gas emissions, the use of a lot of natural resources. So a lot of technology and innovation has been focused on, can we figure out a way to do leather or leather alternatives in a more sustainable way? And there's a lot of really exciting technology here in the Boston area, across the country and around the world that we at Material Impact have been taking a really close look at. Um, and it's a very exciting space that's growing a lot. Yeah, so, like you said, we're going to talk about a portfolio sure. company that is really interesting. But like fast fashion, right? That's yes. a problem. Oh, yeah. Like, like. Oh, yeah. If you look at, I mean, now we can see landfills from space, which is just crazy. Oh. Um, and one of the biggest culprits for landfill waste, right, is really comes from fashion. And so, you know, I think there are different pillars of sustainability as it relates to fashion. And one of them is this idea of longevity and durability of material. So when we as consumers are looking for, you know, to kind of buy something more inexpensively, it may be a material that just doesn't last as long and ends up in landfill. The other flip side of the coin is you hear a lot about vegan leather, right? Which is also more inexpensive, but vegan leather, while it's not animal-based, so there's benefits to it in that regard, actually has like just as detrimental, if not more of detrimental impact on the environment because it's plastic and it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to degrade and lends, ends up in landfill and causes its own host of problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this whole vegan leather space has, you know, is we've heard of this term greenwashing, right? So a lot of brands are saying we offer a vegan leather alternative, but while they may be doing something that's animal free, they're not doing something that's necessarily better for the planet because of the implications that polyurethane products have for, you know, landfills and, and microplastics and all the issues that relate to plastic. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to get even, even deeper into some of this. Love space. It. So, uh, well, let's rewind the clock. So let's talk about your background. So sure. where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? All right. So I grew up outside of Boston, Needham, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, I am back. I am a hometown wow, girl. I am a townie. To <laughs> um, I did spend some time in other cities, but I made my way back home. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up as an only child, which the funny thing was my parents, I think, were worried as an only child. I wasn't going to be very like social or outgoing. So they put me in like all these theater programs and things to make me like, I guess, more vocal and more comfortable, you know, meeting people and interacting. And I think it kind of like flew back in their face because I just never shut up as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I, I would say I was like, I so I was a theater geek growing up, really okay. into to theater. Um, I had a ton of friends. I had a 
you know, a pretty great childhood. Um, I would say I was definitely that person who would go up to anyone in a room, like, or on a family vacation. I had to make friends because I didn't come with, you know, built-in friends, siblings with, along with me. So um, I was definitely the type of kid who was willing to talk to anybody um, at any point. And I think that's kind of served me well as an investor and um, in business from a networking perspective. Um, I love doing public speaking and speaking about topics I'm super passionate about. So that may be like the theater kid deep down inside Definitely. of me. Definitely. <laughs> so what brought you to Cornell to study industrial and labor relations? Yeah, it sounds like a kind of a random major. Um, and it's actually what people would refer to industrial and labor relations is, is ILR or I love reading, a lot of reading. Okay. Uh, so when I was in high school, um, I was really big into mock trial. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually, the Needham mock trial team that I was a part of, uh, made it to the state championships, won the state championships, went on to the national championships. I got to compete at the national level. Wow. Um, so I was like all in on trial law. attorney. Oh yeah. I was like, let's, and it's the funny thing is I married a trial attorney, but, uh, ILR just was like, you know, definitely a, a pre-law type of major. It focused a lot on labor unions and collective bargaining and this idea of employment law. And I thought that's an area that I'm super passionate about and I can see myself going into. And then actually I gravitated once I was in the major much towards like the business elements of the major itself. And I started taking classes at the business school at Cornell and all of the entrepreneurial classes are what I like just loved. And all the law stuff felt like we're always looking backwards at precedent. We're always looking kind of at what's been done before. I want to invent something that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I caught the entrepreneurial bug. Very cool. All right. So how did you get your career started out of Cornell? So it's funny. I feel like when I was graduating from Cornell, there were two paths that everyone took. You either went into finance or you went into consulting. So I was interviewing with all the fina big financial firms at the time mm -hmm. uh, and the consulting firms. And I had interned on Wall Street for a number of years. I worked for BNP Paribas, French Investment Bank, then Merrill Lynch. And Merrill Lynch, through that internship program, offered me a full-time position out of college. So I was like, great, I'll take the position. Now I don't have to sweat about what I'm doing. I can move to New York City. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew going to work for one of these big financial institutions was going to be like a great path regardless of where I ended up. So that was 2007. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2008. Right. Financial, <laughs> financial crisis. crisis. <laughs> and um, Merrill Lynch would go on to get acquired by Bank of America. There was just a ton of turmoil. Um, you know, when I watched the news, it was my friends who were the ones carrying like boxes of their stuff out of Lehman Brothers. Yep. It impacted everyone and it kind of forced me to rethink where I was going. And I could have very well stayed at Merrill, but I started just looking into what's my next step. I remember I started taking a GMAT course because I thought, you know what, school is safe. I'll go to business school. And then I got to the GMAT class and it was like standing room only. I mean, everybody was freaking out. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is probably not the right, right. year to apply to business school. <laughs> yep. And I got an opportunity to join a consulting firm called Vynamic uh, that's based in Philadelphia, um, focused on healthcare management consulting. And I thought this will be great because they work across so many different types of organizations on so many different types of projects. I may not know what I want to do, but at least this will give me experience to touch a lot of different types of project work. Mm -hmm. 
And so I joined Dynamic. I was like the 16th hire. So this is where I started kind of feeling the more entrepreneurial world. Today, Dynamic has since exited. The, com the company has several locations and um, grew and has a phenomenal story attached to it. But it was really great to be there from the beginning. We were really carving out like the thesis of the firm and the first customer engagements. And where I started to kind of carve a niche for myself while I was there was in working with pharmaceutical companies to bring new medications to market. Mm -hmm. So this is where my marketing, you know, journey really started. Right, okay. um, partnering with commercial organizations who were thinking, okay, we need to build a brand. We need to educate a sales team. We need to educate consumers. Um, we need to build a campaign. We need to kind of tell our message to the world. And I fell in love with that process, like mm -hmm. the creative process, the process of negotiating with the FDA for your label, the process of educating a sales team and training them up so they could kind of tell their, that story to their particular customers. Um, but one of the things that I struggled with as a marketer within the pharmaceutical space is just how regulated it is. And as a creative person, you have these big, bright, bold ideas. And then by the time they go through your legal review, your regulatory review, the FDA, they get so watered down that yeah. it's like, you're, you know, and, and to, to the consumer, a lot of people started considering pharma like almost like the tobacco industry. We don't want to get healthcare advice from you. We're going to look elsewhere. And where were they looking? They were look, looking towards these health tech startups that were not regulated, but were having a tremendous impact with patients. And I thought, I want to go work in that world where there's so much innovation, where you can make an app that people actually use, not an app that comes from a pharma company that's so weighed down with safety information, you don't even know what you're reading. So that's when I made the jump. I moved back to Boston um, and I joined a company called MC10, uh, which was founded by one of the um, co-founders and managing partners of Material Impact. So this jump would definitely change the trajectory of my career. Right. Uh, MC10 um, was a startup commercializing a material science technology out of the University of Illinois. Um, John Rogers, who's a prolific professor in the material science, science space, he's now at Northwestern, he had um, developed and patented a platform technology around stretchable electronics, so like stretchable silicon. So we think of electronics as hard boxes, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine what you can do when electronics kind of break out of the proverbial box and are ultra thin and soft and can conform to the human body. What can we learn about our body? Um, what could that mean for, you know, our ability to actually wear something for a longer period of time and gain insight and data about ourselves? Mm -hmm. And so I left the world of multi-million dollar marketing budgets to go to a startup with like no marketing budget. Uh, but really, you know, the sky was the limit as far as what we could do to brand that company, position the technology and find its first partners. Um, and that's really what I came in to do. And we would go on to launch a product with Reebok, which was a super exciting experience. And, um, you know, I really learned about what it takes to take something out of academia that's kind of techie and really known amongst like a lot of academic communities and like share it with the world for the first time and, and the impact that story can have. Um, and that's where I kind of got into the startup world. Well, if you will. It, I mean, it was a really cool piece of technology because I remember the company. Yeah. It was like a, almost like a, like, like a, like tattoo. a bio stamp tattoo. Yeah. Yes. Great, and it was, um, I remember the, the partnership with Reebok. It was, 
like almost like, wasn't it like protecting like players from yes. like concussions for like yeah. in their helmet? Like, That's right. So it, it embedded the the company's sensors into a skull cap that right. would go under a helmet for youth sports and would measure the impact of a hit to right. the head yeah. and report out, you know, this is a significant hit. This athlete should be checked uh, by like a, a physician on the sideline or a coach. Um, and that just happened to be at a time when concussions were making headline news in media and the NFL. Right. A study had come out about just the implications of hits to the head and repetitive concussions amongst NFL players. And so we were really in the mix of that conversation. I mean, we were invited to the NFL um, to speak to Roger Goodell about the topic. We were on every talk show. Um, the company was being recognized by Time Magazine, by the World Economic Forum, by Fast Company. It was just like a really exciting time for the company. We just happened to be hitting on a topic at the right time. And this was when wearables like weren't even a word, right? right. This was like pre-Fitbit, you know, right. an Apple Watch. Yeah. So this idea of interfacing electronics with the human body, that concept was really novel. Mm -hmm. um, and we got to be a part of telling that story, which That's was so cool. really exciting. Yeah. All right, so after MC10, what'd you do? So MC10 would uh, eventually go on to pivot towards the kind of regulated healthcare road and go after um, motion disorder. So I knew it was going to be a while before the company would be launching something. And my, my pure joy is around bringing things to market. So I actually would leave MC10 and go and join Lose It, another Boston-based startup, as their vice president of marketing. A highly scalable company that I, it always never ceases to amaze me how many people are like, lose it is in Boston. I know. I know. And at the time, so we were in the seaport, such a cool office, like right on the water. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lose it was like this quiet company that was have had like huge impact in the field of like weight loss and health. Um, you know, this was, they were really responsible for, I would say, like the downfall or the beginnings of the downfall of Weight Watchers because Weight Watchers was a paid program yep. based on points. But Lose It kind of made calorie counting democratized, if you will. It was right when, you know, one of the founders at the time when the App Store was, you know, coming out said, hey, I always track my own calories. What if I could use this App Store platform to be able to do this in a digital way? Right. And, um... So put the technology kind of on in the app store and, you know, had to have an email address associated with that particular app. And one day opened up that email address and like thousands of people were writing in being like, this changed my life. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. I think he said, wow, I think we're actually onto something here. And Lose It was born. And it was this idea that like, you, it doesn't, you don't need to do some fancy diet or follow some expensive weight loss program. Like, T taking care of yourself, watching what you eat should be as ubiquitous as, and you know, the air we breathe, right? And so um, the company would go on to more of like a freemium model, which is how they, you know, um, kind of earned revenue over time. We also explored things like partnerships with companies that were trying to motivate employees to be more active or take charge of their own health. Um, I was also... Um, partly responsible for helping launch internationally. So, you know, we obviously had a huge presence in the U.S., but uh, we wanted to kind of get out into different markets. So what did that look like? Um, we, you know, I, I got to actually work on a feature with the company called Snapit, which is actually using machine learning to be able to capture what it was that you were eating through a photo. 
which was uh, super cool. And it. at the yep. time, like really the first time we saw an application like that in this space. Um, so really exciting time for the company. Um, you know, they were at the time, I think, two or three in the app store under the health and fitness category. So, you know, going from a place like MC10, where we were just kind of getting out into the market and starting to have traction to a company that had millions of users around the world. Right. As a marketer, the type of insights you can get from the kind of data we were collecting every day about people to be able to offer just even an even better experience, that was an incredible experience for me. Well, I did want to ask you because at MC10, you are doing a different form of marketing than totally. consumer marketing for a mobile app. Yes. So, so what did you learn of the difference of? Yeah. Because you, know, you continue to evolve your career in the marketing totally. realm. So, what did you learn more? Yeah, it was this. Side? It was this B to B than B to C. And, you know, right now, I think it's so great to be able to have that breadth of experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from a B to B perspective, and I would say this. This is something I. I I, to this day use, I think just becoming like obsessed with your customer, no matter who that customer is, is so critical as a marketer. So from a B2B perspective, um, when I was at MC10, it was really about trying to understand kind of the mandates that these companies were having, right? Reebok was looking for something new and innovative. And, you know, this was an opportunity for them to really have impact in the contact sports category. Um, but from Lose It's perspective, I think it, from a B2C perspective, it's really all about the data telling you the story, right? So we, I remember we even found people's eating habits changed during different events, like historical events that happened, like the election. <laughs> we, there's actually, Boston Globe wrote an article about it, if I recall, like the type of stress eating that people were doing during the election and how could we could support them during these kind of moments in time. And... That's where I really learned as a marketer just how critical consumer data is to decision making. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of times when you're in an early stage startup, before you're in market, you do as much research as you can. You look at the competitive set. You look at the offerings that are out there. You do focus groups. You do everything you possibly can. But until you're in market, you really can't understand how your technology offering is going to resonate yeah. and how you might be able to tweak it to increase your engagement or your adherence to, to that particular offering. Lose it had the power of, you know, millions and millions of data points that they could use and harness and come back and create an even better experience for the consumer. Or think about how do we get a consumer to stay in the app for one more day or one more week or one more month? Because yep. as we know, when it comes to dieting and weight loss, it's really the big challenge is getting someone to be adherent to whatever it is that you're asking them to do. They're all in day one, but what about day five? And what about day 10? But what if we learn that if you just stay in the app for five days, you will lose weight? And if we could take that data and prove it to someone, it might incentivize them to stick around for longer. So it's those types of insights that enabled us to be able to reach people where they are and help keep them coming back. Well, it's interesting that you talk about those metrics that matter to the business. Yeah. It just reminds me of hearing about the early days of Facebook where if you joined the app, if you weren't connecting with friends, like yep. they had certain metrics of, we yeah. need to make sure this person's connecting with somebody because then they'll just have an empty feed at the time. Exactly. And uh, they wouldn't stick around. So Right. It's true. It's like the first you know, week is probably the most important you know, as far as how we can predict whether somebody is going to stick around and be loyal to something. Pretty All right. Let's talk about what you're up to now at Material Impact. So uh, you talked sure. a little bit about... Um, 
you know, the founder of MC10 is the one that started this firm? Yes. So Carmichael Roberts and Adam Sharkawi are the two co-founders and managing partners of Material Impact. Okay. And so my path first intersected with Carmichael's at MC10. Mm-hmm. At the, at, so Carmichael is a material scientist. He's an entrepreneur himself who happened to be a VC when I met him. So he loves to build up businesses. Um, and MC10 was actually his 10th materials company. That's where the name MC10 comes from, and it just uh, stuck. Okay. <laughs> uh, but at the time, he was a partner at Northbridge Venture Partners. Oh. He was chairman of the board of MC10. And um, when I came on board, that's where I met him for the first time. Even after I left MC10, I actually used to teach spin here in Boston mm-hmm. at Recycle Studio, if you've ever heard of it, on Newbury Street. And he was one of my most loyal clients. <laughs> I used to <laughs> teach the 6 a.m. class, and he was always there. And so we stayed in touch. Um, and he said to me at some point, you know, I see your pattern, Elise. I know you love to kind of come in, help build up a brand, help position a technology, help find a customer, help launch it. And then you get bored and you move on to the next project. Mm-hmm. What if I could give you a way to do what you love to do in a really scalable way? Um, You know, one of the things about Material Impact is we work a lot with very early stage entrepreneurs and technologies who just don't always have access to kind of commercial expertise and resources in the early days. And you can sometimes make pretty costly decisions if you don't understand the market, if you don't understand the competitive landscape. So he said, why don't you come help all these companies that we're going to building and investing in at Material Impact. Adam Sharkawi was um, a long-term kind of colleague and friend of Carmichael's who had actually collaborated with him on a number of technologies and companies over the years. The two of them were getting um, the fund off the ground. At that point, I think they had invested in one or two companies. This was seven years ago almost. And they said, you know, part of our model is going to be truly operational and hands-on with our investments. Why don't you come on board? And, so, and this is seven years ago. This is yes. before every VC firm had like a platform team. Totally. This is before the <laughs> word is, platform. We didn't know yeah. what to call me. Right. <laughs> but they recognized, you know what? Everyone could use your support. Yeah. So I joined the firm. This was the first time. Obviously, I had, I understood VC from being in the startup ecosystem. But being on the, uh, the dark side, if you will, <laughs> you know, this was a whole new world for me. Raising money now, not as a company, but raising money as a manager, an emerging manager, that was in, and how do we market the firm and the fund? And that was really left to me to really, um, you know, help determine and shape. And so that was an incredible experience working with those two guys to kind of really fine tune what our thesis was. How do we tell the world about it? How do we educate people about it? Because it was also at a time where deep tech or hard tech no one really understood what we were doing. What do you mean material science? Give me an example of material science. Do I know a material science company? Mm-hmm. So we had to like drill it down for people that you know these are the types of technologies and the types of areas that are really meaningful to society, that are super meaningful to industry, and that we're uniquely positioned to go invest in because we had two material science PhDs who actually get it and understood the technologies and know the professors and know the entrepreneurs who are working in this space um, and can really help build the businesses because they're both entrepreneurs at heart. Um, So now it's funny to see, like you said, platform teams are, you know, very common. Deep tech is a very well understood term. But when we were raising, it was a lot of educating LPs on what the hell we were doing. (laughs) And we're operators too. That's something that a lot of people 
VC firms market themselves, which they are, but right. it wasn't as common then sure. to, uh, to promote that. That's right. Yeah. So are you spending a lot of time with academic institutions on sure. their IP and Yeah, that's a huge out? part of what we do. So, um, you know, we've actually, we've taken a lot of technologies out of university. In some cases, we've watched or stayed close to technologies until they're kind of ready for that first investor money. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of technologies that we've spent like a year, if not two years, supporting and helping before we put a single dollar in. Because we just want to, you know, understand that it's at the point where it's protected, where there's a like really a clear path to commercialization. That's one of the, I, I would say, um, perceptions of deep tech is it takes a long time and a lot of money. We are only investing in technologies that have been de-risked through non-dilutive funding or industry research. And we see kind of that clear path to productization and commercialization in the, you know, the next five to seven years. So a lot of times we put in a lot of our sweat equity before we put in real traditional equity. Um, and that's unique. And it's because of the relationships we have with universities. So we've invested in a number of companies out of MIT, out of Harvard, you know, definitely your, the typical Boston kind of uh, universities where we look for innovation. But given that so much is happening in the categories we invest in, in like the heartland of the country, we've actually invested in companies out of Michigan, out of Arizona. Um, you know, we focus on manufacturing and um, industrial applications for technology. And a lot of that's happening in middle America. So not just on the coasts. So we look everywhere. And in the case of Gen Phoenix, we even looked in the UK. Well, I just love when you look at your website, it's like we're a more human VC helping solve big human problems. And not that there's wrong with funding another social media app. Right. When, when you look at the companies you guys are investing in, and I was going through your portfolio, you're just like, oh, I see why that matters, right? It's like totally. AgGen, yeah. eliminating pesticide pollution, a cause of up to 200,000 deaths per year, and helping save farmers $30 billion in pesticide costs. That's right. So even though there is more hard tech investors out there, I would imagine you're not really facing that much competition for the deals you're doing. I'm sure there's some, but I wouldn't, it's yeah. not like you're funding, you know, the, the alumni that are leaving Stripe to all form. They're, you know, like, <laughs> exactly. like the, the unicorns and then they right. go invest in the. Yeah. These are companies that, and because we invest so early, you may not have heard about them yet. Right. The good news is because there's just a more general awareness around deep tech, I think COVID, we have a lot to thank for COVID for that because people were looking for technologies that were going to help us as a society be more resilient to natural disasters or things that are outside of our control, right? We saw what happened to the food supply chain. We saw what happened to delivery of healthcare, right? These are large scale, meaningful problems that need to be solved. They're not going away. They're not trends. They're not fads. That's really imperative to, to what we do. Um, but what's been great is as people's awareness have gone up around deep tech, it's just enabled us to do a great job with syndicate building. So we have more investors. We don't have to educate people on what we're doing, what material science is and why it matters. Now we can actually tap into like re really meaningful syndicate partners who are just going to provide even more value to our entrepreneurs that we can, than we can alone. Yeah. So, you know, and I would say because of the reputations of Adam and Carmichael and the team, 
we see like pretty much everything going on in material science because people just now know, oh, material impact, they get it. We should show this to them. Um, and so we're really well recognized, particularly as it relates to materials and materials innovation. Well, I would think founders, uh, because you have that platform, you know, yep. where you're helping take the science, help commercialize it, market it, and, you know, build a company around it. There's a lot that goes into that, that these founders might not have. Right. So you guys are like full life cycle investors too, you know, from inception to, yep. Right? to exit. Yep, yeah, that's that's the plan. And and what we've done in the past year is we've always been super hands-on with the companies. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we serve as interim CEO or we have like a role on the org chart within the companies. Truly, we're like shoulder to shoulder with these guys. But what we've done this year is we've actually like formalized the process in which we engage with companies. We have something we call swarm teams. Um, and the model is that we recognize that throughout the life cycle of a company, they go through different inflection stages of growth, right? So in the beginning, they may be negotiating for a license with a university. They may be protecting their technology. They may be exploring what other patents are in their space. Um, they may be looking at competitors and how they're going to position themselves. So we have actually groups within our team that are expert at the different inflection stages. And we deploy those groups to work with entrepreneurs to kind of support them and share best practices from our other portfolio companies and our, our other previous experiences. So we swarm them, if you will, <laughs> at these really important milestones and inflection points. And we found that that's been really successful model um, and just a way to kind of really understand the impact that we're having along the way. Well, we started the conversation by talking about what is of interest to you. Yes. And you talked about an area that I would have to argue, I don't know if there's any investor out there that's focused on the sector that you're focused on yeah. of, of leather, right? Yeah. Like that's such a niche yet totally. such a big problem. Totally. So um, Gen Phoenix is a company that raised $18 million from Material Impact and other investors. Yes. So... I guess this is kind of interesting because, like, so my dad, when I was a little kid, um, he owned a leather coat manufacturing no way. company. Yeah. It was in Manchester, New Hampshire. Cool. And so when I was like eight, nine, ten years old, I'd have to go in and clean the factory. <laughs> oh, so that man. means there was people cutting leather yep. and all the scraps would end up on the floor and I would have to pick up all the scraps and put them in, you know, a yeah. thing that would, anyways. So. Wow. What I conceptualized in my head was these scraps that I was picking up, like those would just get thrown out. I don't know what happened to them. They go to landfill. Right. So you, this company yeah. is making use of that. Is that? That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's actually what perfect experience you've had to talk about Gen Phoenix. <laughs> um, so I'll back up a little bit and tell you about kind of the investment in Gen Phoenix and why we were so excited about the company. So we'd been looking at the next gen materials, sustainable material space for a long time, we see a lot of really exciting activity here. A lot of a lot of investment, a huge valuations, right, around technologies like mycelium-based, which mycelium is really mushroom-based uh, leather alternatives. There's pineapple leather. There's cactus leather. There's all different types of um, innovations around harnessing other kind of like plant-based novel materials to be substitutes for leather. The challenge with these materials today is that they just can't scale to meet kind of the price and performance and aesthetic requirements of the major brands, right? So leather legacy brands, and you know leather because of your dad, 
there is a certain kind of quality and longevity and aesthetic expectation from a customer when they're engaging with leather, right? Sure. Leather is actually has its own virtues from a sustainability perspective because it lasts a really yeah, long time. Yeah, you gotta have that jacket for years. Yeah, you might like pass it years. on. Exactly. Right. Um, and the more worn in, the better. Exactly. It looks better with age. Uh, but um, so a lot of the the plant based alternatives that we see on the market today, they're doing they're very exciting, and it's a space that. I'm definitely going to be following, but they are still at a small scale or a lab scale or not really at kind of the performance that brands are acquiring. So they don't want to make a trade-off, right? To have something more sustainable, we, you know, and this goes across industry, right? Sustainability is really important. It's imperative to a bunch of brands, but unless you can have some sort of gain, right? Or parity as it relates to price, efficiency, performance, you're not going to be able to convince a brand to invest in that technology. Mm -hmm. And so what's really critical for us investors is, okay, we have to find a material that's more sustainable, but that can have impact today, that can commercialize beyond pilot production or a limited run or a PR stunt where a brand comes out with one bag that they show that they made from a plant-based material. We're talking about replacing leather that that brand uses with a new material and at a volume that's going to have the type of sustainability impact, the type of decarbonization impact that we're looking for. So what was compelling to us about Gen Phoenix is these guys have been in the middle of nowhere UK, <laughs> um, in Peterborough, England, which is like 40-minute train outside of London. And they've been servicing the mass transportation sector for 15 years. So they've been making recycled leather and what they do is exactly what you just referenced. Today, there's a ton of waste that's created from the leather industry. So imagine when you get a leather hide, you can't use all of it, right? right? And there's imperfections in the hide. And um, it also, you know, it comes in an irregular shape. So you need to be able to cut it for the application that is required. And all those shavings and scraps, they get collected and they go to landfill. That's a problem, right? This isn't about, um, you know, our belief system at Gen Phoenix is around why create new stuff, new virgin material. There's so much waste in the world. Can we take that waste and repurpose and make something out of it? And so this company was actually able to develop a technology process that breaks down leather waste to the fiber level and then uses something called hydro entanglement, which is really high pressure water to reconnect those fibers to create a new recycled leather material that's actually more durable than traditional leather. It actually lasts longer. And through you putting it through a process where it gets coated, it actually can take on the properties of a finished leather hide. They've been doing it for mass transportation forever. So airlines, railway, bus, these are applications that require durability, right? 24 seven use. They also need to have properties like fire retardancy. Um, they need to be antimicrobial. And what was great about this material is it's lighter weight than traditional leather, which makes up for some fuel savings from an aviation perspective. But it lasts longer. It's durable. Um, and it's at a price, you know, comparable to traditional leather. So you don't have to pay more for this, and you get all these benefits. Um, 
Now, the exciting thing was they'd been kind of ticking around long doing the transportation thing, but they started to get some opportunity in fashion and footwear and automotive. So these are markets with, you know, slightly different requirements, but still care about that price parity, that durability, um, and they'd already built that in. These guys can manufacture in their facilities 8 million meters squared of materials a year. Like wow. They have a massive state-of-the-art manufacturing facility that generates kind of these massive rolls of material. They've had, and they use 100% renewable electricity, 95% renewable water, and they've had zero waste to landfill since 2017. So Amazing. they can create massive amounts of material that meet kind of the aesthetic, the performance, the price requirements of brands with no trade-off. And, you know, and that's, and enables them to get to their sustainability objectives. So this was a, a brand that we were like, wow, what, you know, all they need is a bit of a facelift to be able to go talk to consumer brands, right? So they were a very engineering focused company, very focused on mass transportation. We saw the opportunity in fashion. Um, and so, because just to give you some context, some of the brands they serve alone purchase four times more leather than the entire aviation industry does in a year. Mm -hmm. So it's just the, the growth opportunity is massive. So we actually invested alongside of Tapestry, which is the parent company of Coach Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. Mm -hmm. We invested with Doc Martens and Jaguar Land Rovers in Motion Ventures. So to be able to see like these strategics coming around the brand and really not just being investors, but they're also customers of the brand, that was a huge vote of confidence for us as investors. Um, and soon after we made that investment, Coach launched um, a line with Gen Phoenix called Coachtopia, which is a completely circular um, subline within the Coach universe. Um, and they are all about translating waste into new material. And so the investment in Gen Phoenix and also the collaboration with Gen Phoenix has enabled them to tell that story. That line was massively successful, continues to be massively successful, sold out in like a day and a half. Um, and it really just shows that Gen Z and younger generations of consumers are really um, prioritizing sustainability and transparency and the idea of lowering their own environmental footprint as it relates to their intersection with luxury goods brands. So what was super cool about it was like the way Coach engaged with Gen Phoenix, and I talked about this earlier, this idea of rethinking our supply chain, rethinking the way we bring materials to market, Coach kind of got out of its own way by creating this sub-brand, which is serving almost like an incubator within Coach, mm -hmm. where they can quickly iterate, bring things to market, test new materials, um, you know, that are kind of outside of their normal supply chain and their normal bureaucracy, and then funnel those innovations back into the larger kind of parent coach brand. Mm -hmm. So I have to really applaud Coach and Coachtopia for what they're doing and what they've done because they've set this really important precedent in fashion. Because a lot of these big brands, it's hard to get innovation to market. It's hard to engage with startups um, when they're kind of set in the way they've been doing things for decades. Well, a perfect example of Gen Phoenix of what you talked about of the uh, material impact being very hands-on. Yes. You're the interim CMO. So That's talk right. about your role within the company. And, yeah. you know, it's obviously a, it's a marketing challenge that you've seen before with MC10 perhaps, but talk about your, yeah. your role there. So I guess first order of business, when I did, you know, I was part of the deal team for Material Impact on Gen Phoenix, and we spoke with 
a lot of customers of the brand. And one of the things that came back to us was the company's name was actually E-Leather, which stood for Engineered Leather. Oh. Um, I mentioned that Gen Phoenix has a technology platform. Today, they put recycled leather into that platform and create new material from it. They also have the capability to take lots of different types of post-consumer textile waste and break it down to the fiber level and bring it back up to a new material. So imagine like a suede boot or uh, the end, an end-of-life jacket. They can actually break that down to fiber, build up a new material that that brand could use. That is the holy grail of circularity for brands, to be able to do something with all the extra inventory they have at the end of a season or do something with the products that consumers give back to them once they're finished with them. And so that kind of, you know, that ability to kind of enable circularity goes beyond just leather and into other textile sources. They can also break down think plant-based materials to a fiber level and build them back up. So e-leather was really about a, um, a, a name that was defined by one product, not the breadth of what the company could do. So as a marketer, my first order business was we got to change the name, <laughs> right? We have to have a name that's defined by the mission and the vision of the company, not just by any one product within its portfolio. So we were really inspired by the phoenix, right? So a phoenix in its definition is this mythical bird, this creature, right, that rises out of catastrophe, more powerful, stronger, more beautiful than before. That's really what we do at Gen Phoenix, right? We take something that's bound for landfill, supposed to be a waste stream, and we actually build it back up into something more beautiful, more strong, more powerful than it was before. And then one of the other things we heard a lot in diligence was just the fact that this is all about younger generations, right? Gen Z's buying power is anticipated to be higher than any generation that has preceded it. And we know that Gen Z prioritizes kind of sustainability and brands that are embracing kind of new models of bringing product to market in a more responsible, open and transparent way. So Gen Phoenix is really a nod towards this younger generation, this new generation really focused on sustainability and the idea of circularity and making something new out of trash and old, something old. <laughs> so um, that was my kind of first job as a marketer was how do we rebrand the company and then we also have to like tell the story to the world in a way that resonates with the brands that we're trying to now appeal to and while also servicing the brands that have really helped establish the baseline of this business which is really around transportation so it's about you know un really understanding the needs across all these verticals and making sure that we tell the right message to the right vertical um, so that first press release that we put out, which announced the investment, was really like our first foray into telling that story to the larger world. And since then, we've now been educating the brands that we work with um, on who Gen Phoenix is, what we're all about, and how we're going to be on this sustainability journey together. Because that's one of the big things as a marketer that I've noticed is super important. Yes, we are a more sustainable material, but at the end of the day, it's about the objectives of our partners that matter, right? Like they've set out these ambitious objectives. How do we help kind of enable that through our collaborations with them? And that really gets back to that B2B versus B2C, right? This uh, being obsessed with your customer and understanding what matters to them, um, what they've signed up for and how we can be on a journey together, so. 
What advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to get uh, attention in the media? So Jen Phoenix has had a considerable amount of articles written about the company and maybe, you know, uh, fashion magazines, you know, because it's a line from coach, you know, there's a interesting story for them to tell there, but not everyone has that story that's interesting. So how do you go about getting media attention for something that maybe doesn't have that immediate draw? Yeah, it's, you know, in some cases, there are brands that can afford to work with PR agencies or PR consultants. But for the most part, the brands that we work with at Material Impact, they don't have budget for that today. Um, And they may not be in market yet. Um, and so it's it's really about, okay, how do we tell our story in a way that's going to generate credibility for the company and buzz and media attention? It's important for recruitment. It's important uh, to, you know, get investors interested. It's important uh, to get customers interested. But how do we do it? So, you know, one of the things I would say is you it's really important as a brand to go through like what I call a positioning exercise, which is just understanding what is the unique value that you bring to the world? Um, and in order to do that, you kind of have to you know, take into account a few things. The first is who your customer is, right? So really understanding who it is that what you're building matters to and having almost like an obsession with understanding their wants, their needs, what they don't have access to today. The second piece is who are your competitors, right? So how are, what's the competitive landscape and how are you different? A lot of times I see brands try to position themselves in media and they're kind of just copying what the other brands that are like them do and say, because that's the easier way to do it. It's the path of least resistance. Like our website should look like theirs. The way we describe ourselves should, you know, highlight these sorts of things. There's no way you can beat them at their own game just by copying what they've already done. You need to have a unique point of view. So by understanding them, you can kind of look at the areas that they're not touching and see if that's an area that you uniquely can own. And then the third piece is understanding just your value proposition and how do we really sell that. So once you have like all these ingredients and you can really position yourself as a company and a brand and you have a message that is compelling, I think it's about looking for milestones that you've hit as a company that are newsworthy enough for someone in media to pay attention to. So there's a few that I always look to. The first is financing, right? So even if you've raised a little bit of money or maybe it's non-dilutive funding that you've gotten from a government grant, um, even if it's money you've just raised from friends and family, when you are like a real commercial entity, it's a perfect opportunity for you to say, hey, guess what, we're real, we're announcing ourselves for the first time and we're venture-backed or we're funded. So financing is a brilliant time and you will find there is a whole set of reporters who care about financings. You know, looking for those reporters and understanding who they are, what they write about, the size rounds that they write about, right? The Wall Street Journal is not going to cover a $500,000 seed round, but there are probably local publications that will, right? So, and it's just about... SEO and getting you on the map. So financings are important. The second is some sort of technology milestone. So maybe um, you've been doing a study and the results of that study are being published and this is kind of a groundbreaking discovery you've made or some sort of advancement in your technology that's unprecedented. That is something that technology writers are really going to care about, right? Because you're moving this industry forward. You're doing something different. You're showing up with data that's really unique and compelling. If you're being published, that's even better, right? Um, 
so I would say a technology milestone that moves an industry forward, that's another opportunity. The third and the harder one, but it's an important one, is once you've had some level of commercial traction. So this could be a customer that's just doing a pilot with you, but if the customer is a well-known, recognized, credible organization, they're going to be able to lend credibility to you. So talking about the results of a pilot you ran with that customer or the fact they've placed an order, reporters love to see commercial traction. So in any flavor that it may be, even if it's an LOI, if you can get a customer to publicly say to the media something like, if we are able to implement this technology or this service, this is going to be game changing for us as a, as a brand. Mm -hmm. That is tremendous validation and reporters will want to write about it. So I would say those are kind of like three different types of milestones that a company can leverage. That combined with a really strong position in the market tells a really nice story. And most reporters have their emails, their social media contacts publicly available. So, you know, put together a great package, cast a wide net. I bet you'll get some bites. And like you said, make sure you're focused on the right people that write about yes. what you're trying to cover. Exactly. Like Venture Fizz is not a media company. Right. Yet I get so Do many you? inbound emails <laughs> of bet. this stuff. Like I'm just like, there's some really bad PR. I mean, there's bad services of anything from recruiters to accountants. Like I mean, every service has right. its different structures of high and low to medium, whatever. But I'm just like, man, this is just mass marketed to everyone. Now, there's PR firms that are really, really good that I will see an email and I'll be like, wait, because they send good things and it's my next podcast guest. Right. Uh, so make sure you... And then also build those relationships ahead of time. Totally. Not just when you're like, I need, you know, to no. get some attention now. It's like, yeah, gotta, it's like. A lot of times reporters will say, you know, this story isn't right for me, but keep me in the loop. When you have announced, when you've launched your product, which is another opportunity, obviously, to go out into media, right? When it's mm -hmm. commercially available, you can point someone to a website, you can put, press buy. People are going to care about that. You're yeah. real now. Um, but a lot of, you know, reporters will say, when you've launched call me or when you've done a collaboration with someone call me so it's great to just kind of build and sustain those relationships because they're also those reporters may be the ones that come to you and say i'm writing a piece on x y and z i love your perspective um, and that's when you have a great symbiotic relationship but mm -hmm. it takes time to build that relationship and build that trust and same thing for raising capital Yes. You don't go to search the market for investors because you need capital today. Right. You start You're that in process. it for the long game. Long game. <laughs> yeah. Develop a relationship. Right. Keep them educated on your milestones. Same idea. Same That's right. Idea. All right. Top three apps you can't live without. Oh, my goodness. This is a tough one. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I'm a parent of two young kids. This app is it's not one that most people have. But the app that shows me pictures of my kids from daycare during the day... I probably go on that app more than any other app. Sure. Um, Makes sense. I'm, you know, I'm a big um, New York Times reader. So I would say New York Times, 100%. I love their podcast, The Daily. I would say when I'm, whatever I'm doing in the morning, getting ready, driving somewhere, that is the podcast I'm probably listening to. Okay. It's funny as an investor, like just knowing what's going on in the macro environment is so important as it relates to where we invest, how do we educate our companies on what opportunities are available to them. So like general news is just all, especially given the, the sheer number of industries where we invest, it's a great way to kind of stay on top of, of stuff. 
and then probably AccuWeather because I'm constantly thinking about what I'm sending my kids to school in. <laughs> Do you need a raincoat? Probably. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say, you know, and then obviously my email is like, you know, because I work with Jen Phoenix and they're five hours ahead of me. The first thing I go into my email is my email in the morning because they've already been up for five hours. So <laughs> I usually have a ton of email to get through first thing in the morning. All right. Any other? Well, you just gave a podcast recommendation. You know what? Yeah. I'm going to switch the question. Yeah. What's your favorite Broadway theater production? Oh my God! Can I you love actually that. like? Can you like? Probably. Down to one? Uh, probably Wicked. Okay. Yeah. It was, then Wicked's come to Boston. I love the whole soundtrack. Now my daughter's into the soundtrack. It's just so good. The music is so phenomenal. But I just love, like when I used to, I used to live in New York City and I used to go to theater all the time. And then when COVID happened and like we couldn't go to the theater anymore. But now that my daughter likes to come with me, we've been going to all these local productions and plays mm-hmm. like the Needham Community Theater, the Wellesley Community Theater. They're so great. That's awesome. You know, it's so great. So like even in your community, if you can't make it to Broadway, I bet you there's some good stuff, you Definitely. know, yep. close by. <laughs> all right, well, you're busy. You're an investor. <laughs> You've got a family. (laughs) Anything else that you do outside of work that you can find time for? Um, I mean, obviously spending time with my family now that I have two little ones, that seems to be the priority and they keep me so busy. Now they're in all these activities. My daughter just started tennis and ice skating and Mm -hmm. dance. And my son is now walking, which is like, God help us all. He's just getting into everything. Um, I've always been kind of like a fitness person. I, I, like I mentioned, I used to teach spin. Um, I used to run marathons. So carving out time to do a workout, even if it's like 45 minutes, it's like my sanity. So that's the one thing I will say that I continue to do for myself is go for a run, take a workout class, get on the Peloton, something like that. It's still really important to me, but I miss the days of teaching spin. That was a lot of fun. Um, Who knows? I might get back into it at some point, but. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Elise, thanks for taking the time to walk us through your background story, your journey, all the great work that you and the team at Material Impact are up to because it is a very meaningful fund making investments in the companies that really matter. Thank and you. Um, obviously all the great advice. And I do want to thank Startup Boston Week for hosting us at this venue and the Suffolk University team for uh, supporting the Boston tech ecosystem because Without Suffolk, this would be a very different event because this is yeah. a top-notch production. But and plug done. for, I'm coming back to Suffolk on Thursday morning. I think it's like 9.30. Okay. Um, it's a marketing panel. Um, it's going to be awesome. So if anyone wants to come by, it should be a really good time. But all the programming that Startup Boston does is top-notch. I've been participating in the event for several years, even when we were all virtual during COVID, and it was still phenomenal. So really excited about the week. Yeah, it's an amazing team that pulls it all together. It's countless hours. It's volunteers. And uh, we need more of this in Boston. I feel like yeah. there needs to be more startup Boston type of events. So, totally. Uh, we don't get enough credit. And like, there's just so much innovation that comes. I mean, think about our university ecosystem, all the VCs that are here, all the startups. I feel like we're quiet about it, but we could have some more swagger when it comes to, to startups. Agreed. <laughs> so I'll leave it on that note, but I a thousand percent agree with you on that. So, well, thanks again for all the information and stories. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.